culture iced coffee listeners. Some background as to why I'm so ornery in this particular episode, or I should say extra ornery over the usual ornery quotient. Between 2007 and kicking off this series, I gained some small notoriety as a secular advocate in Australia, turning my writing skills to making the recently religiously disabused feel less lonely after their church or family turned their backs on them, and putting my talents for oratory and on-the-fly argument to task, pushing back against the whining entitlement junkies various religions put forward as spokespeople during a brief but ill-advised theological dalliance with the idea that live debate constituted a good way to defend religious privilege and make converts. I'm still willing to take up the secular side of a well-turned debate topic, but the invitations dried up when religious adherents realised painting please kick me on the seat of their pants and bending over wasn't making them look as dignified or respectworthy as they're accustomed to their silly hats and embroidered vestments making them feel. I don't think anyone that listened to even a handful of episodes would have any illusion that I respect religions or religious faith. But in case you're listening for the first time, I'll clarify my position. I don't believe in anything supernatural. I don't care if you do. I do care if you try to force anyone else to care that you do. My goal as a secular activist is to make myself redundant by eventually reducing the extent to which religious people can inflict their beliefs on other people. In short, my atheist agenda has one bullet point characterised in four polite words. Please leave me alone. This episode, like every other episode of the series, will be profane and opinionated, and I won't care if you take a heroic dose of umbrage over my disdain for any deeply held beliefs you, or someone you like and respect, holds, because that's your prerogative and not caring about your prerogative is mine. Are you sitting comfortably? Again, I couldn't care less. Your posture is your business. Let's get the Antarctica rolling. Antarctica is the least God-bothered continent on the planet. Human presence there kicked off late in human history, and the number of humans there at any given time is low and their tendency short. Reading the history of religion, it's clear that deities follow us as we travel, and not the other way around, so it's not surprising to find few temples and churches on the ice. Add to the historical angle that the people who do reside in Antarctica usually do so when they're young and fit, and that the selection process to get a bet on the continent skews in favour of the well-educated and the scientifically minded, and the space and resources customarily afforded religious institutions in our communities are reduced even further in Antarctica. There's just not a huge call for special places to pray or perform penance, and those that have been established are, on the whole, poorly attended. The first services conducted in or around Antarctica arose from lay preachers aboard the ships or among the expeditioners. The regularity and length of sermons tended to depend on the piety of the captain, and many didn't bother with much religious observance beyond pulling the bare bones of a funeral service out of the common book of prayer, or its denominational equivalent, when someone died and needed lobbing over the gunnel. Karl Anton Larsen established a Norwegian Gothic-style church at Grytviken for his whalers in 1912, presided over by a Lutheran pastor, Christian Lurken. Attendance was poor because the whalers weren't terribly interested in turning over what little spare time they had to listening to someone preach, and Lurken, the only pastor the church ever had, 
gave up on the smelly heathens after a year and headed back to Norway. The locals used the building for the funeral services of those now buried in the small graveyard nearby, but tourist operations placed more bums on pews than the whaling company ever did, with the church serving as a site for Christmas celebrations and occasional weddings in the years since the whaling station closed. The first officially recognised preacher to reach Antarctic shores was Arnold Spencer Smith, who put ashore at Cape Evans as a member of the ill-fated Ross Sea Party of Sir Ernest Shackleton's Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. He went south as expedition photographer, but preachers going to preach, whether you're paying them to or not. Spencer Smith set up an altar and vestry in Herbert Ponting's former darkroom in the Terra Nova hut, and held regular services from its pokey confines. His final days on the barrier comprised a delirium of scurvy adult musings on his faith and his past, so no great showing by God on Spencer Smith's account. His grave lay close to the toe of the Beardmore Glacier, so his body likely lies somewhere in the barrier ice, accompanied by whatever crucifix proxy his companions managed to fashion for him. On that note, the first gravesite in Antarctica is that belonging to Nikolai Hansen, atop the headland above Camp Ridley at Cape Adair. It features a standing crucifix and another crucifix picked out in white stones on the ground. Graves and memorial sites around the Antarctic margin usually feature crucifixes, as most of the people who died there until recently came from nations with Christian-majority populations. But I wonder if that will change as fewer people's remains are left there and as the Christian demographic shrinks, a process presently playing out in my own nation at pace and likely to receive significant spikes when the boomers, and to a lesser extent my own cohort, fall off the twig. Launcelot Fleming was ordained as a deacon in 1933, but after a stellar season received promotion to priest in 1934. While his title within the British Graham Land Expedition was chaplain and geologist, I think John Rymill took him south as a member of his team because Fleming was good value at high latitudes rather than because of his rapid rise up the Anglican League table. Putting the clerical role first in the documentation may have allayed concerns from Fleming's superiors at Trinity Hall, who gave him time off from his clerical duties to head south, that their man wouldn't let slip his godliness during his time attending to science. Fleming managed to fit some preaching in between transits aboard the Panola and trail excursions. No one seemed to particularly look forward to his weekly services in their accounts of the expedition, but no one seemed to object to them either, which sums up most Anglican congregants' attitudes to their faith fairly neatly. The first service held in the Antarctic where the preacher was officially recognised and paid to be there in their capacity as a preacher took place during Operation High Jump. Lieutenant Commander William Menster consecrated Antarctica for what that magic incantation's worth to the continent. While Roman Catholic by faith and vocation, the US Navy wasn't paying double for deadweight mouths to feed, and Menster had to cater to non-Catholic believers too, holding ecumenical services that sneered in the face of the schisms and, in many cases, the centuries of bloody war that separated the doctrines of the various faiths such services try to represent as being essentially same-same. Keep in mind that I didn't write the rules of identity and non-contradiction, or decide that one and three are the same thing, and then gone on to burn anyone who disagreed with me at the stake. 
So don't come at me simply because it's easy to take cheap shots at religious doctrine. I can attain the high up fruit, but there's so much more hanging, so, so very low. Christ Church Cathedral in Stanley serves as the nominal Anglican consecrated ground for the British Antarctic Territories, though I don't know if Anglican prayers can cross the convergence, so its efficacy as an antenna to God for those serving at Rothera or Halley stations is yet to receive scientific study, though I've got an inkling that the null hypothesis will hold for intercessory prayers regardless which side of the convergence they arise from. But I've insufficient life left and fucks to give to justify the time and energy necessary to establish an experiment to test the hypothesis and gather the data. Built in the early 1890s, the cathedral occupies ground left vacant when a peat slip destroyed Holy Trinity Church, which clearly mustn't have pleased the deity it was built to worship. Many Christians claim their Lord moves in mysterious ways, but sending a peat bog to erase your attempts at architecture seems pretty straightforward. Don't like this, start over, be less crap. Either that, or they built their church beneath an unstable peat bog that sought and found gravitational equilibrium. Again, cheap shots, but let me know if you ever see a church without a lightning conductor affixed to its steeple. The first church erected as a territorial gambit below the convergence, rather than as an attempt to save the souls of the locals, lies on the Kerguelen Islands at Port-au-Francais. Made of concrete in the Art Lego style in the 1950s, and consecrated as Roman Catholic, the present structure hosts a small number of services each year when French expeditioners visit en route to or from Terra Adeli. I'm sure there's no decree in the literature arising from Vatican II requiring that Catholic churches built after 1940 have to look like public toilet blocks, but they do, and Notre Dame des Vents hits that architectural aesthetic dead centre, and given it lies at 49 degrees south, likely matches those edifices in dankness, even if no one's used it as such. There's a statue of Mary and huge infant nearby. Our Lady of the Wind, for sure. McMurdo features a small church, the Chapel of the Snows. Originally built in 1956, the church wasn't mapped out in the naval plans for what became McMurdo Station, wherein the mess hall was slated to host religious services. Naval chaplain Father John Condit encouraged the Seabees to put aside Quonset hut components and any extra timber they didn't need to fulfil their Operation Deep Freeze mandate, and the chapel came together through volunteer labour. Besides hosting religious ceremonies and offering residents some quiet and relative privacy, the chapel housed memorabilia accumulated over the many years of Operations Deep Freeze. It caught fire in the winter darkness of 1978, either because God doesn't exist and shit happens regardless, or God didn't find the 1956 architecture pleasing two decades later, and applied the peat bog slippage renovation mode once more. The fire crew did their best to bring the blaze under control, but ended up bulldozing the consecrated building away from the aerial communications and electrical wiring and the surrounding buildings, these coming under threat from the heat. The bulldozer then dropped load after load of snow upon the flaming wreckage, but nothing other than the steeple bell, itself taken from an oiler, came to light as salvageable. Religious observance shifted to a makeshift chapel in a concert hut, previously used for storing musical instrument and for band rehearsals, and remained there for the next 11 years. 
Someone seeking an early departure from their winter contract set fire to the chapel furnishings in 1981, but passers-by noticed the smoke and removed the fire from the burning building. When the CBs of Antarctic Development Squadron VXE-6, of whom you'll hear a lot more in future episodes of this series, built a replacement, the Quonset hut returned to musical duties until it burnt down completely in 1991. The new chapel went into service in 1989. Lieutenant Brad Yorton consecrated the new church, but given the number of people who use its relative privacy for purposes other than religious worship, I doubt any priest could ever hope to keep pace in the race against desecration. Entropy always wins, let alone when a bunch of heathen Antarcticans are getting high in the nave or fucking in the sacristy. The Chapel of the Snows has served as a place of worship for Mormon, Jewish, Buddhist and Baha'i ceremonies, but the regular services are held by Protestant clergy, presently provided by the New York Air National Guard, and Catholic clergy, provided by the Diocese of Christchurch. I met the summer 2004 Protestant preacher, and we ate lunch while discussing his role on the ice. I don't think he convinced himself that what he brought to Ross Island warranted the expense and resources it took to get him there. I certainly wasn't impressed, but I did attend his services thereafter, when the diving schedule and weather allowed, and still wasn't impressed. Just on the outskirts of McMurdo is the naffest religious figurine I've come across, and I've been to Mexico and Italy. Roll Cage Mary is the local name given to the figurine representing a half-sized virgin mother looking out over the sea ice from beneath a sturdy nest of steel reinforcing rods bent into a grotto and surmounted by a crucifix. More formally labelled Our Lady of the Snows, Catholic punters from anywhere other than McMurdo will take umbrage over the Roll Cage Mary epithet and demand you give their kitsch, mass-produced icon tucked out of the way and visited only by people looking to take a photograph of something other than the industrial chaos of their Antarctic hometown or the distant mountains, the respect that it's due. It's safe to ignore these people, as blasphemy is a victimless crime. Ross Island is dotted with memorial crosses. One lies on the northern side of Hut Point Peninsula, near where George Vince slid to his death in a blizzard during Scott's discovery expedition. One surmounts Observation Hill, placed in memory of the five members of Scott's poll party. There's one at Cape Evans, memorialising Spencer Smith, McIntosh and Hayward of Shackleton's Ross Sea Party. There's one atop a nun attack, near the crash site of the Air New Zealand DC-10 that flew into Mount Erebus in 1979. The original wooden cross, placed there in 1981, eroded ablated away by wind-borne snow. A stainless steel cross featuring an extra cross piece, mounted orthogonally to the two axes of the historically accepted Roman-style crucifix, for the saviour occupying extra spatial dimensions, replaced it in 1989. In 2009, the relatives of the dead placed messages to their loved ones in a canister in the shape of a koru, the spiral-growing tip of a silver fern, a symbol of strength, peace, growth and new life in Maori art, and a symbol of national identity to all New Zealanders. The intention to fly some of the relatives of the dead to the flank of Mount Erebus to place the koru at the foot of the memorial cross fell through due to adverse weather, 
but a Scott-based team got the capsule in place the following year. The site of the crash was declared a tomb in 1981, as a number of the 257 bodies were never recovered, and the area received Antarctic Specially Protected Area status. Various memorial plaques adorn Ross Island buildings, noting the deaths of base personnel, and there's a bust of Richard Bird out in front of the National Science Foundation chalet, identical to the one in Unity Park, Dunedin, both being cast from a pattern sculpted by Felix de Weldon. But I should save sculptures and statuary for another time, or I'll digress too deep and risk getting decomprehension sickness. I wasn't aware of much religious observance or iconography during my time at Scott Base, but I know that in 2013, a Pufenua, carved by Naitahu artists, received pride of place on the shores of Pram Point. Made of hard-as-fuck West Coast Totara, Navigator of the Heavens should hold up okay in the local climate, while more delicate Naitahu Tukutuku weavings, representing links between New Zealand ancestors and those New Zealanders who died in Antarctica, and celebrating New Zealand research at Scott Base, received space inside. More recently, two Māori carvers, Poetama Hetaraka from Northland and James York from Southland, visited Scott Base to install Whakawai and Pae around a doorway in the mode of a Māori whare. While I'm some time away from writing scripts for the episodes about the IGY, I recently purchased some literature about the Russian experience in Antarctica, picking up a copy of Johann Smull's Antarctica Ahoy from Colin Monteith. Smull, a journalist, headed south from Kaliningrad aboard the Kuperatsia. Recounting his final moments with his wife, quote, And Deborah said, It's a pity I don't believe in God. I really don't know to whose care to commit you. I did not remind her that she and I are communists and atheists, that half the first act of my new anti-religious play, Leah, was lying right here on the cabin table, and that it would be embarrassing and improper to write it while sailing in God's care. Truly, her words moved me, and I saw what she meant, but all I said was, Hear, hear. End quote. It reads as a really odd and stilted phrasing, and while you might pass some of that as arising in the translation from two radically different languages, it's a common theme in Soviet-era writing, the reiteration of party-aligned thinking. Whether the author expressed sincere appreciation for communist doctrine, or wanted to ensure no one could question his commitment to the party, is moot. The statement reads as an article of faith either way. Soviet communism abolished religion until it proved useful. Joseph Stalin, seeking to apply a bellows to patriotic fervour in the darkest hours of the Great Patriotic War, reinstated the Eastern Orthodox Church, resurrecting anti-religious policies once the wholesale Nazi retreat gathered pace. Therefore, the Russian presence in Antarctica, established in the IGY and in the middle years of the United Soviet Socialist Republic, didn't incorporate religious observance in the design of its bases. Charles Swithenbank wintered with the Soviets at Nova Lazarevskaya and commented on the dearth of religious literature, among other categories of material deemed heretical to communist doctrine. Conversations, once he learnt to speak Russian, sometimes touched on the numinous, but never in the presence of a party representative, 
and he kept accounts of such discussions vague in his memoirs and lectures, perhaps so as not to drop anyone in the shit after the fact. Official Russian attitudes to spirituality changed in the 1990s as the Soviet state fell apart. A charity began collecting donations to establish a Russian Orthodox church in Antarctica, and a design competition saw the contract fall to a group of architects from Barnoll. The resulting building, designed to seat 30 congregants and constructed of Siberian pine, went south aboard the academic Vavilov in Kitfor, and now stands on a headland overlooking Bellingshausen Station on King George Island. Volunteer Russian Orthodox priest monks preside over services and ceremonies, but take up other duties around Bellingshausen when not on the god clock. The iconic and icon-filled Trinity Church stands in stark contrast to the Soviet colours and shapes at Bellingshausen, and even puts the more colourful edifices at the Chilean Frey Station, immediately adjacent, in the shade with its architectural flourishes. Sadly, its most notable role in Antarctic history arose in 2018, when it served as a jail cell for a Russian station resident who stabbed a colleague and awaited deportation for trial on a charge of attempted murder in St. Petersburg. More on that in a future episode about crime in Antarctica. There's already two such offerings in podcast circulation through the series Antarctic Stories and Curiously Polar. A Russian Orthodox cleric arrived at the South Pole in January 2000 as part of a motorised overland expedition using snowbug vehicles propelled on six balloon tyres. The Russian Orthodox priest, Victor, held mass using Nestle's Mackay crackers in place of the Siberian black bread he brought along to stand in for the body of Christ, but which he couldn't find on account of his companions having filled up on the body of Christ while still some hundreds of kilometres from the pole. Victor found some comfort in the wake of this transubstantial mystery in that he became the first cleric to hold mass at both ends of the earth, predating 2010 and 2012 attempts to officially consecrate the Arctic by the Russian Orthodox Church. The Capilla de Nuestra Señora de las Nieves, Chapel of Our Lady of the Snows, is architecturally the most interesting church on the continent in that it's an ice cave. I'd sit through a Catholic mass for the novelty factor though I do tend to catch fire as I try to cross the threshold of most sacred spaces, so the locals might not appreciate my melty presence unless they're planning on renovations or extensions. The chapel holds services for the residents of the Argentine base Belgrano II, Ecclesiastic Boogaloo. Lying at 76.86 degrees south, it's pretty neck and neck between Capilla de las Nieves and the synonymous Chapel of the Snows at McMurdo, for the southernmost place of worship. Given my indifference to the exiest why and religion, I found a source of fractal not caring, but I thought I'd include that tidbit for factual symmetry. That I don't care doesn't mean other people don't, and maybe if there is a god, an extra couple of hundred metres further south really matters to them in terms of ignoring the prayers issuing from their worshippers' edifices and orifices. St Ivan Rilski Chapel is an Eastern Orthodox edifice at the St. Clement Oridsky base, Bulgaria's presence on Livingston Island in the South Shetlands. The Bulgarian stake in Antarctica kicked off in 1988 
with logistical support from Russian ships and personnel. The original church, comprising a wooden structure with a trapezoid cross-section, went south in kit form in 2001. The base staff only ever reaches 15 personnel, which is fortunate as the church floor measured 3.5 by 3.5 metres, so with full pews there's likely little room left for the Trinity. It's decorated with icons and surmounted by a bell donated by Bulgarian Vice Premier Nikola Vasilev, who served as base medical officer in the 1993-94 Austral summer. In the 2011-12 summer, a replacement chapel with a semicircular cross-section replaced the trapezoid version, which still stands and which still houses its Eastern Orthodox worship accoutrement so I think the new structure must have its origins in an assessment of the efficacy of different shapes in transmitting prayer. I found several articles about the chapel, but they're written using a Cyrillic alphabet, and they may also be in Bulgarian. It would be strange if they were written in English using Slavic Cyrillic, but I can't rule it out because I can't read the characters. Either way, I couldn't find anything additional in them to add to this episode's notes. While the Bulgarian presence followed the Russian presence in Antarctica by three decades, the Russian Orthodox Church lies within the Eastern Orthodox Church, the distinctions and the schisms behind them lying so far beyond my care event horizon they border on a sort of inverse caring that lies on the far side of outright indifference. Grand Prince St Vladimir, equal to the Apostles Chapel, serves the Eastern Orthodox needs of Ukrainian residents occupying Venadsky Station on Galindev Island among the Argentine Islands. It's a small wooden unit constructed in 2011, funded by a donation drive in Ukraine. Its pokey size is, by report, made up for by its iconographic content, if you're into that sort of thing. Venadsky Research Base was formerly Faraday Station, which was formerly Base F, the Brits having moved into larger digs when Wordy House on Winter Island in the Argentines no longer sufficed. In 1992, the Russian Federation emerging from what was the Soviet Union declared that all former Soviet bases in Antarctica belonged to Russia and no newly independent nations got any, regardless how much their citizens and economies contributed to their establishment. The then President of Ukraine, Leonid Kravchuk, made known the national intention to continue in Antarctic research and the Ukrainian will to maintain a presence in the south drew attention in Britain, wherein the British Antarctic Survey contemplated mothballing Faraday Station. Diplomats diplomated and ambassadors basseted and Ukraine took possession of the facilities in 1996 for a symbolic one British pound, which is preserved in the station bar for symbolic purposes. Ukraine got an Antarctic footing on the cheap Bass swerved the expense of decommissioning and removing the buildings, and the Eastern Orthodox Church got another excuse to paint some icons and erect that patriarchal cross that makes it look like Jesus was an insect with asymmetric hind legs. I do know why the Orthodox cross is shaped that way, but the reason's so boring, you can just take my take on the matter as being more entertaining and leave it at that. Capilla de San Francisco de Assis hold services for the Argentine staff at Esperanza Base, Hope Bay. As the first Catholic church in Antarctica, it holds a lot of firsts. 
the first communion in Antarctica, the first marriage in Antarctica, the first baptism in Antarctica, which ties into the story of births in Antarctica, a topic for another episode. But for now, know that there have been 11 pregnant women sent south to experience labour in Antarctica and give forth nominal Antarctic citizens from their uteruses between the Argentine and Chilean bases. Esperanza is Argentina's town base, with a school and a hospital and families. The base motto reads, Permanencia, un acto de sacrificio. I don't know if the base will maintain, but there's a truth in that for those Argentines and Brits lying in or memorialised at the graveyard. A statue of Mary of Luhan stands in a grotto, though it's less impressive than the one erected for Roll Cage Mary on the other side of the continent. I'd love to see a smash-up derby for motorised grottos. It seems exactly the sort of event that would match neatly with the overall aesthetic of Catholic iconography. I'd wager 400 quatloos on Roll Cage Mary. Capilla de Santa Maria Reina de la Paz, St Mary Queen of Peace Chapel, services the spiritual needs of Chileans living at Frey Station on King George Island. The Chilean government calls the base Via las Estrellas, the village of the stars, because having a town in Antarctica with a school and a hospital and 150 residents in the summer and 80 in the winter, stands the Chilean province of Magallanes in good international stead as incorporating Chilean Antarctic territory, in the eyes of Chilean government at least. But more of that anon. The church looks like any small, white, wooden Catholic house of worship you might find in any Patagonian town, which goes to show that looks can be deceiving because it's a steel shell built from shipping containers with a welded on steeple and crucifix. The building required extensive repair in 2014 because even God can't stand up to Antarctic conditions, apparently. The cleric, a representative of the Opisbado Castrenza de Chile, the Chilean military bishopric of the Roman Catholic Church, lives on base throughout the year in case someone needs an emergency exorcism in the winter dark and it's too cold to fly the bell, book and candle in from outside. Capilla de la Santisma Virgen de Luján serves Argentine residents at Marimbio Station on Marimbio Island, or Seymour Island, depending on which territorial claim you want to give precedence to. Sited near James Ross Island, the Argentine station houses up to 50 personnel, and those inclined to worship God can do so in another steel box with a bell on top. Though like most Argentine buildings in Antarctica, this one's painted a fetching red. Or is it orange? My appreciation of that part of the visible light spectrum is fucked up, but I care more about the colour of churches than I do about what it offers me in terms of spiritual nourishment. Every few years, I receive an email requesting a donation towards establishing a Catholic church at Mario Zucchelli Station at Terranova Bay on the Victoria Land coast. I don't think the station staff have been calling for such a facility, and I see no reason to inflict an RCC priest on their existence, so I keep my checkbook chained up. If the Vatican sees fit to establish an empty box and fund a lonely celibate celebrant to the ice, let them do it on their own coin, likely made of Nazi gold. There's a grotto set into an igneous rock finger on the shore near the Polish research station Arktowski in Admiralty Bay, 
Catholic iconography and the ubiquitous statue of Mary sheltered from the prevailing winds. It's a nice spot, with threads of pale jasper showing through the eroding primary rock, and it's easy to ignore the intrusive kitschiness of Catholicism in an otherwise stunning landscape if you turn your back on it, as I encourage everyone to do with religion. That's all Christian though, and people from the two other Abrahamic faiths have gone south, and in the same way the Southern Hemisphere makes a mockery of Christian Easter, a springtime celebration syncretised to celebrate the death and rebirth of the three-in-one deity that lands in the Southern Hemisphere autumn, its date being based on an astronomical model that doesn't match what's actually going on in the sky, the seasonal shift doesn't always heed the backstory of the ceremonies and celebrations arising from Middle Eastern cultures at a point in their history when they had no idea they occupied an oblate spheroid. Key elements of Jewish and Muslim daily, weekly and annual ceremonies are cued to the sunrise and sunset, placing anyone seeking to remain orthodox below the Antarctic Circle in a quandary for at least some of the year. The problematic presence or absence of the sun lasting longer the further south they take their faith. There's no problem so daunting that a leap of faith can't fail to provide a coherent answer to, so why should a protracted Ramadan fast pose a particularly daunting prospect? Nonsense squared is still nonsense, so those Muslims or Jews requiring guidance on how to time their observances find it from their respective clerics who apply industrial-grade rationalisations as to why the rules don't apply in a situation the knowledge framework from which their religion arose couldn't imagine, let alone incorporate, and subclauses and appendices to standing orders arise as needed. Phew! That was a close one in terms of maintenance of your eternal soul, wasn't it? Nah, just kidding. That's bollocks layered on top of fuckery. In addition to temporal uncertainties, Muslims displaced from Mecca by long and multi-dimensionally curved distances face the question of which way to face when bringing out their prayer mats for the daily roster of kneeling and praying. A direct compass bearing is easy to understand and to determine, but a great circle route offers a shorter distance across the surface of the earth. But, if distance is important, should they calculate the shortest possible distance as a subterranean path for their prayers? A Muslim at Tematagi Atoll is as near to the antipodes of Mecca as landfall allows, and could face in any direction and lie about 20,000 kilometres from the holy city. But an 8,000 kilometre shortcut exists if you're willing to rig your prayer mat vertically and find some way of harnessing yourself to it, sending your observances through the floor, the ground, the mantle, the core, and out the equivalents on the far side. Muslim residents in Antarctica could use less dramatic non-orthogonal orientations for less dramatic percentage shortcuts, but calculating precise bearings and gradients lies outside my pay grade. I'd just as soon they chuck the exercise and put the energy into some other hobby. To date, no mosque or temple I'm alert to arose on Antarctica or its islands. Hindus visit and reside in Antarctica, but it's a religion capable of travelling light observance often being a personal matter of name-checking favourite deities in the polytheistic pantheon, reciting mantras and making offerings and lighting incense. I don't think current or past Indian presences in Antarctica put aside space for religious devotions, not even to the same extent the male residents at Mahindra Station monopolised the communal space to watch porn together. See episode 106. 
I don't know much about the Chinese stations, past or present, and can't state whether or not they incorporate temples of any kind. I can recount that I travelled south with a shipload of Chinese Buddhists who wanted to meditate and pray in the clean and cold air, and the company I was contracting for took their money as readily as that of any other punter. Some Buddhists of my acquaintance, though I won't call them friends because they're assholes, take issue with me including Buddhism in the set of religions because Buddhism doesn't feature a deity. There's no hair so thin that some religious adherent won't try to split it, even if Occam's razor lies orthogonal to their intended cut. The different forms of Buddhism differ in writings and interpretations of how to Buddhism, but the common features of most sects include numinous origin stories, instructions for spiritual development, and a supernatural agent that watches your actions and keeps score in some form to work out the starting parameters of your next turn on the reincarnation wheel. It's true there's no deity you could hang the name on, but that's a matter of semantics. Functionally, as far as imaginary concepts function, karma is a deity no one fully anthropomorphized. So claiming Buddhism is atheistic is just a word game, and a low caliber one at that. We drove our Buddhist guests about in the zodiacs, left them alone in silence when requested, rafted the zodiacs up to afford them a floating meditation, which is like a meditation on a ship only lower down, and stayed out of the communal spaces on ship when the presence of non-Buddhists would have done something untoward to whatever the chanting was achieving. Beyond those factors, it was a normal voyage with a slightly lower quotient of asshole guests compared to the average demographic. The one Buddhist I've had a problem with in an Antarctic context came on another voyage on his own. A monk in whatever division of Buddhism he belongs to, he was a pain in the ass. He had no respect for women, wore smelly robes he never changed out of, and kept trying to leave a large, green, plastic representation of a flower in the Antarctic landscape. It was some sort of garden ornament, fitted with a spike to hold it in the soil, and it was solar-powered so the electronic elements in the stem could play a recording within, over and over. More chanting, in this instance. He'd go ashore, meander away from the group, dig a hole in the snow, litter it with the Buddhist equivalents of chick tracts, and plant the plastic flower over the newly sanctified site. One of the field team would meander over after he left, remove the flower, dig up the artefacts, and the expedition leader would return them to him, and remind him that we're not allowed to leave stuff behind, regardless how spiritually important we think it might be. He would nod and smile and receive the returned articles with feigned good grace, and then do the same thing on the next landing. I think the expedition leader was on a path to ban him from landings if he continued trying to foist his offerings on the landscape, but it never came to that point, because I forgot to hand the materials on to my boss after removing them from one of the landings. Silly me. It was only after we welcomed a new tranche of guests aboard at Ushuaia that I remembered the flowers in my cabin. Oh well. He thought he got them stashed in Antarctica, and given the overall efficacy of all forms of religious observance, that the plastic flower actually became a totem among the field team, who took delight in hiding it in each other's cabin, and seeing how long it took for the occupant to find the ugly extrusion, its chanting growing fainter as the batteries ran down, absent a good dose of sunlight, it had the same effect as planting it on the shore would have done. While religion was taken to Antarctica as an afterthought to every other facet of human need and want, 
religious bigotry turned up everywhere the opportunity to marginalise someone arose when people did, reinforcing my hypothesis that after we got past a glib explanation for lightning and misfortune, religion's main role in human history has been in defining and condemning the other. Aircraft mechanic Benny Roth became the first Jewish Antarctic expedition member I'm aware of when he wintered at Little America under Richard Byrd. While Byrd didn't hold his team to regular religious observance, and the story of their winter reads as a chapter from one of Dante's less egregious circles of hell, the locals still felt enough Christian superiority to give the competent and willing machinist a lot of stick for having the temerity to be different and not hide it from view. For shame. I can't find any record of anyone at Little America 2 or West Base or East Base ever giving similar stick to Ike Schlossback for his Judaism. I'm sure it featured during his days as a midshipman, the first of his faith to train into the US Navy officer track. But by the time he reached Antarctica, the one-eyed hard case already carried sufficient experience and presence and prowess as a wrestler to see most bigots perceiving discretion as the better part of their craven mouth spoutings, and they zipped it. Most personal accounts of experiences in the heroic era of Antarctic history feature mentions of God and divine providence, but these usually comprise the sort of casual, throwaway platitudes that make up most of Anglican doctrine. Not a lot of fire and brimstone old-time religion, just the automatic habit of adding God to the mix because God comprised part of the furniture of the Victorian-era mindset. It's rare to find Antarctic literature arising from someone who really put a lot of thought into their faith or took the consequences of that faith seriously. One example arises in Dr. Edward Adrian Wilson, companion and confidant to Robert Falcon Scott during both of his expeditions south. Dr. Wilson held his Anglican faith close to heart. Where Scott's diaries are peppered with the occasional references to divine providence, and more often with blasphemous exclamations such as, Great God, this is an awful place! Dr. Wilson's diary features long tracts of Anglican-framed worship, praising his God for giving him challenges as readily as for solving problems or erasing discomforts. His fatalistic mindset regarding the extreme cold and pain he put himself through in what his companion, Apsley Cherry Garrard, later labelled the worst journey in the world, speaks volumes about a religion's ability, when taken seriously, to give a believer a nonchalant approach to death. His wife, Oriana, found some comfort in Dr. Wilson's written accounts of his experiences in Antarctica and his regularly professed anticipation of joining her in an afterlife. But if someone mapped out that degree of indifference to our survival while facing adverse conditions, I'd start making contingency plans accounting for their willingness to suffer as those suffering held merit. That's some Mother Teresa reasoning, and I won't have a bar of it. I don't find Dr. Wilson's faith laudable. By his own writing, the deity he worshipped offered death threats as readily as boons, making their input moot to any situation and the opportunity to respawn after death removed a lot of the sense of urgency most people feel when facing existential threat. I can't state categorically that an atheist in his stead would have seen the final three members of the poll party through to the one-ton depot, but I can categorically state that Dr. Wilson laid down and died serenely, suffering to the last. Perhaps an atheist would have taken the suicide pill that Scott handed out. Perhaps they would have stumped over on their frozen biscuits and died in the snow. 
either way. Suffering for the sake of suffering wouldn't have been part of the secular navigation suite. Unfortunately, it isn't a strong driver in most religious people either. Dr. Wilson took his faith more seriously than even I did when I believed what my religious instructors taught me. It's rare to find someone so confident of their promised afterlife that they actively celebrate death as a release from mortal bondage the way that Dr. Wilson wrote he did. Most people I've met are scared of death and mourn those they've lost in a way that doesn't support the contention that they think they'll see their loved ones again. I think Dr. Edward Adrian Wilson, while laudable in many aspects of his professional work and personal interactions, constituted a dangerous person to pair up with for trail operations at high latitudes. True believers scare me, not because I think they might be right and that I might have to rethink some stuff, but because they're capable of acting on heinous religious injunctions without hesitation and without concern for the well-being or rights of others, because they consider mortal life and earthly philosophy and earthly law subordinate to their deity's wishes. Many people who travel south as tourists make a lot of noise about how amazing their specific deity is for having crafted what is, in the truest sense of the noun, an awe-inspiring landscape. I bite my tongue unless they ask for my contribution to their witnessing directly, at which I tell them I'm an atheist and don't think any deity seeking to awe us did a good job by placing maximum awe potential so far out of reach of so much of humanity for so long. The conversational tone usually falls away quickly and I find some wildlife or geology to discuss while the umbrage quotient ramps up to 11. I don't know if anyone ever complained to my boss about such interactions, but given the other things people have complained about, I wouldn't be surprised. Someone once told my boss they didn't like me telling them that dining with the guests is part of my job, and someone complained that my not drinking made them feel uncomfortable, and someone lodged a complaint that I told him to go fuck himself. In my turn, I called for an apology from that guy for calling me a Nazi, but given I got kicked off the ship and he got a discount on his next trip, I think Quark heeded his concerns over my own. No one ever complained about my Zodiac driving skills or the breadth of my knowledge and willingness to share it, or the quality of my lectures and written materials. I figure I was doing okay on all but the mindless deference fronts, and anyone who employs me seeking that is on a hiding to nothing. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is best avoided.